Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Triathlon's turbulent 2020 continues apace with the cancellation of the Lubbock 70.3 happening a mere three days prior to the scheduled date of the event. Given the rapidly rising numbers of case both in Texas and Lubbock itself, there's no doubt in my mind that this was the right call. I'm only perplexed as to what took so long to make it. Muncie is still tentatively scheduled, but again, I can't help but wonder why in the world anyone would want to go there and why Ironman hasn't pulled the plug in the face of what is clearly an out-of-control situation. It's a pretty sad state of affairs, and the reality of the situation, at least for me, is that I am actually enjoying my training quite a bit. I've discovered new pleasures like gravel riding, and while I would like nothing more than to get back to triathlon, my personal gratification pales in comparison to what is going on in the grand scheme of things, and I'm content at this point to keep myself, my family, and the members of my greater triathlon community safe and out of harm's way by not congregating in a large group just prior to the start of a big event. There are scant positives to come out of this period, but a couple are worth noting. One is the huge surge in new cyclists. As more and more people take up bike riding, we can be somewhat reassured that if and when these folks return to driving, they might have a slightly improved attitude towards those of us who spend a lot of time on two wheels. A second is the increased social and racial conscience being displayed by people in our industry. I learned today of how Ochoe Bikes is rebranding their line after learning of the terrible history behind the namesake town that the gravel bike manufacturer takes its name from. The Ochoe Massacre took place in Ochoe, Florida on November 2nd, 1920, when black Floridians attempted to exercise their right to vote, and instead, as many as 50 of them ended up dead and their whole neighborhood was razed by whites in what remains the worst political violence in American history. I had never heard of this story, and neither had the owner of the bike company, but once he did, he immediately made the decision to change the name of the company and rebrand all of the bikes, including all of those that have already been sold. So there's hope, my friends, because out of all of this darkness, I'm definitely seeing some signs of light. On the show today, I continue my series on diversity in triathlon, or to put it more appropriately, the lack of it. Farron Campbell is active duty military in Washington, D.C., and a competitive athlete in bodybuilding, triathlons, running, and swimming, and most recently was the runner-up in the Miss D.C. competition. After taking up triathlons in February of 2017, she did her first 70.3 in October of that year and completed her first Ironman in Louisville last October. She joins me for a conversation on what has kept triathlon fairly white to this point and what might be done to make the sport more inclusive. First, though, I have a medical question to answer. A listener wrote me to ask about a product that has been aggressively marketed over the past year or so and promises pretty remarkable results, and all from a unique application, something you rub on your skin. As always, I was intrigued. What is this product, and could it possibly do anything resembling what it promises? Well, I get myself all amped up to find out, and I'll let you in on what I discovered, and that's coming up right now. To perform exercise in a maximally efficient way, our muscles require a constant supply of two things, a source of energy and oxygen. Now, energy can come in a variety of forms. It can come as carbohydrate, it can come from protein, or it can come in the form of free fatty acids. It can even come in the breakdown products of some of these things, such as ketones. 
Oxygen supply comes from the blood. Uh, the oxygen that we breathe in from the air binds to hemoglobin molecules in the blood in the capillaries of the lungs. It's then transported to our hard-working muscle cells, wherein it combines with carbohydrates or free fatty acids, whatever fuel is being used as me metabolic substrate, to form high-energy phosphate bonds in a molecule called adenosine triphosphate. That adenosine triphosphate is then utilized with the breakage of those phosphate bonds to provide the energy in order to power the muscle cells. Now, the ability to use oxygen and produce ATP, the maximal amount of oxygen that can be used is referred to as VO2 max. When we exceed this maximum threshold, we shift over to another form of metabolism, which is called anaerobic metabolism or metabolism in the absence of oxygen. And in that state, begin to form lactic acid. Now, lactic acid itself, if it is not dissociated into an acid form, is referred to as lactate and can be a form of fuel that can be further utilized. But we know that when we cross over into this anaerobic state, we tend to produce more lactic acid than just lactate, and in these conditions, muscle cells become less efficient. Well, for a long time, exercise physiologists have looked for ways to manipulate efficiencies once we cross that VO2 maximum threshold. A couple of different things have been looked at, and I've actually looked at a couple of these in uh, previous episodes of this podcast. One of them is to enhance lactate metabolism, and you can do that by increasing intracellular carnitine. Another way is to neutralize the free hydrogen molecules and to produce more lactate from the lactic acid, and you can do that by increasing intracellular bicarbonate. Now, research has shown that these strategies, for the most part, don't work all that well. You'll recall in episode 12 of the TriDoc podcast, where I discussed supplementation of beta-alanine that's a precursor for carnitine, although it has a lot of promise and theoretically should work to improve metabolism and decrease the amount of acid buildup, doesn't really work all that well and doesn't actually improve your lactate threshold. As far as bicarbonate is concerned, there's a reasonable body of literature on the oral supplementation of this compound, which is usually taken in the form of baking soda. And studies have shown mixed results, but the preponderance of evidence is that bicarbonate supplementation doesn't really improve performance. There have been some studies that suggest otherwise, but the improvements have been minor and, for the most part, seem to be somewhat controversial and not consistent across studies. Now, it's not that hard to figure out why this would be the case. Uh, essentially, our bodies are finely tuned machines to accomplish a very specific task, and that is to maintain a constant environment internally. And this is called homeostasis. And our kidneys are really prime organs that are involved in this task. Anytime blood chemistry is altered in any way, especially in terms of pH or the level of acidity in the blood, the kidneys work in overtime to fix things very, very quickly. So for example, when you take bicarbonate, even in an oral solution, you alkalinize or increase the pH, make your blood more basic very quickly. Well, the kidneys immediately detect this and start holding on to acid or hydrogen ions, uh, resorbing it from uh, the urine, if you will, and uh, holding on to that and making the blood more acidic and basically alkalinizing your urine. So taking in bicarb just alkalinizes the urine almost immediately such that the pH of the blood remains constant. And by doing this, 
bicarb doesn't end up getting into the cells at all because the bicarb is essentially excreted almost as rapidly as you take it in. So not that hard to understand why taking an oral bicarb probably doesn't help all that much. Okay, well, all of this background gets us to this episode's question. Steve wrote me to ask my opinion on a product that he's been seeing a lot of on his social media feeds. He wanted to know if there was any science to support the claims being made by the makers of Amp Human, the cleverly named lotion that purports to dramatically enhance performance in cyclists and triathletes. Now, I had seen some of these claims in my own social media feeds, but had dismissed them pretty much out of hand. But when Steve wrote to ask, I decided it was time to look into it. Now, if you've been living under a rock and have somehow managed to avoid Amp Human's aggressive advertising, the product is a lotion that you apply to your skin before workouts to purportedly, quote, maximize your training, extend your threshold, and recover faster, end quote. Now, all of these claims are powered by bicarbonate. And at $55 for a supply to cover 20 workouts, it darn well better do all of these things as advertised, because that's pretty pricey for a bottle of lotion. So let's take a look at the claims and see if there's any evidence to back them up. Now, before going to the Amp Human website to see what the evidence they wanted me to see was, I decided to do a standard search of the medical literature for any evidence of bicarbonate lotions applied to the skin and any effects that that might have on exercise performance. Well, unfortunately, I came up empty, no matter how many permutations I used of the terms in my search of bicarbonate, exercise performance, and transdermal applications, I couldn't find a single published study that had looked at this kind of application of bicarbonate in any kind of published research. So not off to a great start. But then I went to the AMP human site and looked at their claims and the science that they provide as a means to back those up. Now, first off is a claim that by using AMP human, you can increase muscle efficiency by 11%, sort of. The site uses a lot of hand-waving in this regard, uh, and by that I mean they're not totally straightforward as to what muscle efficiency is. They say different things about the same kind of result when you look up in different places on the site. What seems to be consistent is what they mean by increasing muscle efficiency is that they claim that by using AMP Human, you can increase intramuscular lactate levels by 11%. Now, I want to go back to what I talked about a little bit earlier about exceeding VO2 max threshold. When you exceed VO2 max threshold, you switch over to anaerobic metabolism and produce a lot of lactic acid. Lactic acid itself is a metabolic waste product. But if lactic acid can be reduced by the addition of a base, you form lactate. And lactate can, theoretically, be used as a fuel by hardworking muscle cells. So according to the AMP human studies, they found that you can increase intramuscular lactate levels by 11%, and that would mean that you're increasing muscle efficiency because that lactate is available to be used as fuel. Got it? Okay, so where's the proof? Well, I found exactly one study, and that study is located on the uh, product website. And it was done by a few people, including a gentleman by the name of Mark Kern, who's a PhD researcher at San Diego State University, and he shows up repeatedly on this website, but I can't tell if he has any financial interest in the company or not. I, I looked on the San Diego State website as well, and he doesn't appear to be involved with AmpHuman, but it's kind of hard to tell because he's so involved in all of the research uh, of the product. 
At any rate, because the study was only ever presented as a poster at a conference, it was not subject to peer review, and it has never been published. I was able to ascertain, however, that this study was funded by the makers of Amp Human. At any rate, the study was fairly small, looked at 20 cyclists who were randomized to either a placebo lotion or the Amp Human lotion, and then put through paces on a cycle ergometer. Uh, the cyclist did a ramp test, a 30-second sprint, a 5-minute TT, and then a day later did a 60-minute time trial. Researchers measured lactate levels in the blood, as well as blood pH and heart rate, and subjective measures of um, uh, perceived exertion of the athletes throughout and recorded it at various time periods during all of the aforementioned cycle tests that they did. Now, I should mention here that the reason for measuring lactate is, again, because you can't get a good measure of what's going on within the cells, so you look in the bloodstream for evidence of lactate, because lactic acid will stay within the cells. So if you have a higher level of lactate in the blood, it suggests that there is more lactate in the cells as well. But this is an, a bit of an extrapolation, because seeing lactate in the blood doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't also more lactic acid in the cells. It's a little bit of an extrapolation but it is one that's not totally out of the realm of acceptance. Okay, so the researchers, when they did their study, they compiled all their results, and it is true. They did indeed have a statistically significant finding that lactate was higher in muscle cells by 11%. But wait, because the AMP human folks have been a little bit disingenuous with cherry-picking this result that they want to share with you in the hopes that you won't read the study it's taken from. First, it's probably worthwhile defining for you what statistically significant means. Statistical significance is a term that researchers use when presenting results and doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of meaning for us as consumers. Statistical significance is simply the probability that the difference between two results is true as opposed to have being found entirely by chance. So while two results can be statistically significantly different from each other, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are clinically relevantly different from each other, as we're about to find out. And secondly, we should probably refresh our memories on what relative difference is versus absolute difference. So relative difference is when you take the difference between two numbers and you turn it into a percentage. So for example, if result number one is 110 and result number two is 100, then you take 110 minus 100 and that's 10 and 10 divided by 100 means that your absolute, your relative difference is 10%. Sounds like a pretty reasonable amount. But when the numbers are much smaller, you can still have larger percentages with the absolute difference not being that much. And that's what we see in this study. So for example, when we're talking about lactate levels, remember, AmpHuman suggests that by using their lotion, you will increase lactate levels by 11%. And they suggest that this translates to an increase in muscle efficiency. Well, when you're using placebo, your lactate was 9.7. And when you're using AmpHuman, it was 10.8. Now, I don't know about you, but while relative to one another, that 11% difference sounds pretty impressive, the absolute difference of one isn't all that impressive. And it gets better. Taking from the poster directly, these results were only true for the ramp, sprint, and five-minute time trial segments. 
So there was really no difference found in the one-hour time trial, which much more accurately represents what most triathletes are going to be interested in. Also, there was no indication whatsoever that the one millimole per liter difference in lactate actually translated into any performance benefit because there was none. So whether or not you were using amp human or placebo, you had absolutely no difference in the wattages you were able to produce across any of these tests. And this bears repeating. There is no performance benefit whatsoever. So this is a lab difference without any clinical differences. So that 11% increase in cellular efficiency that they are claiming doesn't turn into anything that matters to us as triathletes or cyclists. All right, the second claim that can be found on the AmpHuman website relates to improvements in heart rate. And again, AmpHuman does some pretty disingenuous things with the representation of the data from the exact same study to be done on this, the aforementioned study that I talked about by Dr. Kern from San Diego State University. Now, first off, on the website, AmpHuman is claiming to provide a 3.1% benefit in heart rate that they claim to be significantly lower, not statistically significantly, but actually they are claiming it to be significantly lower when using the product than without at the 15-minute point of a one-hour time trial. So put another way, if you're using the AMP Human Lotion, according to the AMP Human website, you get a 3.1% benefit in heart rate that is over using a placebo lotion, and that is at the 15-minute point of a one-hour time trial. So there's a couple of problems. Like uh, uh, there's a couple of problems with this claim. First off, on the website itself, there's a graphic right next to this claim that demonstrates that the benefit was actually only 1.6 percent, not 3.1 percent. And second, that relative benefit in percentage was only three beats per minute. So again, 3.1 percent, if that's actually what it is, is three beats per minute. So knowing the absolute difference, does that make you more or less likely to think this product is beneficial? Are you going to spend $55 a bottle for 20 workouts to get a benefit of three beats per minute in your heart rate? Lastly, and most importantly, and I'm quoting directly from the poster here, remember, they said that this statistic, sorry, they said that this significantly lower heart rate was seen at 15 minute point of the one hour time trial. Well, on the research poster itself, it says that heart rate and relative perceived exertion were statistically significantly lower for a transdermal solution of bicarbonate, in other words, amphuman, compared to placebo at the 15-minute mark of the one-hour time trial, but not at any other time point. So basically, over a one-hour time trial, you can expect to see a benefit that is not clinically relevant, but might have some statistical significance at the 15-minute time point, but at no other time point during the one-hour time trial. What else is there to say about this? Well, the next claim on the site relates to a very impressive reduction in delayed-onset muscle soreness. Same study, same authors, same uh, subjects, this time different objectives and methods to determine the outcome. Basically, after one day during which the cyclists were doing the sprint, ramp test, and five-minute time trials, riders scored their delayed onset muscle score, uh, sorry, their delayed onset muscle soreness on a visual uh, acuity scale. Basically, they looked at a piece of paper that uh, had ratings from zero to 100 as to how much muscle soreness they had, and they just picked a number off of that scale. The uh, athletes were then given lotion to use, and that lotion was either a placebo or the amp human. 
They then, on the next day, did a one-hour time trial, and the day following recorded again their delayed onset muscle soreness score on the same visual analog score, scale. So according to the authors, the, those who used a placebo lotion had an increase in their delayed onset muscle score from day one to two of 34%, while those who used AMP human saw a 54% reduction in their delayed onset muscle soreness. And there's a couple of important caveats here. First of all, we don't know the start points. They're just saying that those who used placebo saw their DOMS go up, while those who used AMP human saw their DOMS go down. But if we don't know where they're starting, then it's not really helpful. So, for example, what if the uh, what if those using the placebo started with a score of ten, and those using the amp human started with a score of ninety? So, on day two, uh, the people in the placebo, even though their DOMS went up, maybe their DOMS only went up to twenty-five, and then the amp human, even though they saw a fifty-four percent reduction, they came down to forty-five. So, you know, great, they had a reduction in their DOMS, but they still have worse soreness. Without knowing the start and end point of the DOM scores, we can't know for certain that the amp human users actually saw a relative benefit to the placebo. The other important caveat is that visual analog scores are incredibly subjective, and the score used in this study has never been validated before. So it's kind of hard to know whether or not these scores are really accurate and whether or not they are something that can be usable in order to uh, give an accurate reflection of delayed onset muscle scoreness. And these kinds of changes are really pretty remarkable. Uh, the fact that uh, you get a 54% reduction in DOMS over one day from using a lotion, uh, that's a little bit hard to believe. And whenever you see results that are a little sort of stretching credibility, then you have to really you know, think hard about whether or not they're actually true. And this is especially true when you consider the lack of any good theoretical or practical science to support how this would be accomplished. All right, the final claim on the site relates to a suggestion that the use of AMP human can increase intervals to exhaustion by 25%. And the study that this is linked to um, is, again, uh, not peer-reviewed, uh, this time not because it was a poster, but this time because it's unpublished and was conducted not by any kind of uh, research body, but rather by a private indoor cycling facility located in northern Colorado with eight cyclists as subjects. The protocol seems pretty well designed, and per the study, uh, the use of AMP human allowed cyclists to perform 25% more 30-second efforts before exhaustion than without. But such a small, unpublished study needs to be interpreted with a lot of caution, and I'm not entirely sure what to make of this, uh, this result on its own. So at the end of all of this, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, then you're going to recognize some similar themes in the marketing of this product that have been encountered in a lot of the others that I have reviewed. They have a lot of evidence supported by and often conducted by the manufacturer. Uh, there's statistical significance that is reported and marketed over clinical significance. In other words, the fact that results are statistically significant different from each other is hyped much more than the fact that the results are not actually clinically significant from each other. There are small absolute differences misrepresented as much more impressive sounding relative differences. And there's cherry picking of results without disclosing the less favorable bigger picture results. So all of this to say that in the case of AMP Human, as in so many other products that I have reviewed, the marketing budget is attempting to make up for what the research and development couldn't really provide. Uh, 
And at $55 for 20 workouts for really no benefit whatsoever, I would suggest that you consider if that money could be better spent on something, really anything else. Sunscreen, perhaps? Moisturizer, if you're really focusing on something for your skin? Or better yet, if you're more interested in results for your money, maybe I might suggest a coach. I think I know where you can find one who won't charge you nearly as much as this product over the course of a year. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. My guest today is Farron Campbell. Farron is originally from North Carolina, but currently lives in Washington, D.C., where she is active duty military and is a competitive athlete in bodybuilding, triathlons, running, and swimming. Although she says that she was primarily a runner, she discovered that she really loves to swim and bike and do so much more. And that is what led her from ultra trail running to triathlons for increasing challenges. She began triathlons in February of 2017 and did her first 70.3 in October of that year. She completed her first Ironman in Louisville last October, the same race that I did as well. And she uh, is uh, joining me today to discuss what can be done to increase diversity in our sport. And I'm extremely excited to have her with yes. me. Welcome to Thank the TriDog Podcast, Farron. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be on your podcast today. Farron, uh, we've chatted a little bit uh, before coming on here today. Uh, mm-hmm. We know that, uh, you know, as of now, black athletes represent less than 1% of all Ironman athletes in the United States and Canada. Um, yes. Why do you think that is? I think a lot has to do with opportunities growing up. Um, desegregation of swimming. Let's start with swimming. Desegregation of swimming pools didn't happen until the 1940s and throughout. And so what is that about 80, 90 years ago? So our grandparents didn't learn how to swim. They weren't welcome to the pools. So in turn, you know, for me personally, my mother doesn't know how to swim. But my father does. You know, he's a country boy. He'll just jump in the lake anyways. But a lot of it has to come with just opportunities. You know, we, we're just now being able to swim next to each other. It's not a long time ago. Um, our schools don't have swimming programs because then you can't pay for swimming lessons. You have your red, line, your red line districts that we talked about earlier. There's no pools in there. Nobody's funding them to swim. So you're not exposed to it. So opportunities, exposure, and then income. Um, triathlons in and of itself are a very expensive sport. Um, I know for myself, my starter kit for a bike was about a good two, three thousand dollars. You know, yeah. so if you don't have three thousand dollars in the bank, you know what kind of bike are you really gonna have? Um, but then another thing is just uh, awareness. Who really knows about triathlons with the people of color communities? It's a lot of basketball, football growing up, maybe some baseball, but nobody's really pushing you to say, "Hey, go give triathlons." Because why? There's no scholarships in triathlons. There's no triathlon team for you to go to school and get a scholarship and make it out of your community. You know, so there's just things like that in the mentality um, coming up because I just learned about triathlons maybe 2016, 2015 before I even thought to even do one. I was like, what's a triathlon? I don't know what that is. So when they told me I had to do three sports in one, I was like, yeah, let's do the challenge. Sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) But a lot, you know, just to keep it real simple and basic, you know, opportunities you know, being aware, having having the resources and the income, I think it I think it kind of takes a toll on the um, 
you know, that diverse community. Is there anything, um, is there like an extra obstacle as a black woman that uh, makes it even harder coming to triathlon or is it just the black experience in general? I think it's just the black experience in general. Um, I know when I first stepped foot on a pool deck, you know, I go swim at 430 in the morning. I'm the only African-American in the pool. So when I show up, they're like, you know, what's the stereotype? Black people don't swim. Yes, I do. <laughs> you know? yeah. I swim and I swim well. So it's about breaking that barrier, that mentality and that stereotype of, you know, black people can't swim. So it's not just a male or woman, you know, kind of thing. It's a it's a people of color issue. Yeah. And I know that for me and uh, I, I'm trying to educate my listeners uh, who may not know as well. For me, uh, that was something that I only learned about when I moved mm-hmm. to the United States uh, a couple of decades ago about the history of swimming and how it was so entangled with racism and Jim right. Crow era sort of laws. Yep. But I had not realized that that even extended into the North. Uh, I, I learned about how pools in Harlem were all closed and yep. um, th- this whole notion of keeping black people out of swimming pools and how mm-hmm. that's really only, and even today that continues, you see uh, continuously stories of, uh, you know, white people calling the police because a black person mm-hmm. shows up at a private pool, that kind of stuff. Right. And, and right. that's, that's the unfortunate, uh, you know, what we're dealing with and why we're out on the streets today to try and Absolutely. raise awareness of that. Um, right. are you finding that, uh, that remains a barrier to a lot of black people to get into, tr- to this sport because, uh, it continues to be even amongst your peers that, that swimming continues to be something that is just not done. I think swimming is absolute because what's the first event of a triathlon is the swim. So I think that is the upfront barrier. Um, again, we have that systematic stigma that's already been set up against people of color that you can't go in the pool, you can't do this. So there's that inert fear of water, of you know, getting in the pool, of getting in the ocean, because a lot of the races that I do are open water swimming. So take that beyond the pool. You ain't getting in no ocean. <laughs> you know? It's just another uh, mental game to to combat. So I do think that is still uh, a barrier today with um, people of color is getting through that first hoop of getting into the pool. If USAT and WTC were going to really make some good outreach type, you know, steps to increase diversity, then should they mm-hmm. focus on swimming? Should they really try and uh, outreach to the black community to try and get swimming programs for them? Um, I do. I think, I think if you start investing in programs within your local pools, we have, you know, the Department of Recreational, you know, the community pools that are in the area. Yeah, absolutely. Do a program. I know down here, I'm, I'm, I live close to Howard. They have a swim team. And so, granted, it's not for triathlons, but it's a step closer. You know, swimming starts with, you know, that first step to getting in triathlons. So I do think if USAT were to implement a program within the communities, of swimming lessons, swimming program, it was set that comfort and that outreach of, of getting more um, people of color's attention. And you mentioned the economics. And I mean, listen, the economics are true for everyone. I've had these Mm -hmm. conversations with white coaches and white athletes as well. Uh, But there's no question that it affects people of color and minority Mm -hmm. uh, communities much more because just that's the statistics that you're going to find lower socioeconomic status among those groups. I'm not entirely sure what the answer is for that. But uh, I wonder if you have any ideas of, of how those kinds of things might be able to be addressed, uh, you know, to try and encourage more diversity? Is there maybe a, 
I don't know, a bike recycling program or something like that that we could think of that would uh, potentially bring in more uh, people of color to the sport by, by affording them those kinds yeah. of opportunities. Yeah, I, I don't know any bicycle recycling program, but I know I am a, a lot of uh, marketplaces for triathletes that are willing to sell their bikes at a very discounted rate because they want the new one that's coming up. So any of my friends that are interested in getting a bike, I'm like, hey, go to this website, go to this link, you know, get a bike, get one, you know. Um, and some people are willing to work with you on the price if they really want to just sell it. So there is that kind of a, you know, idea rolling around. It's just the marketplace for triathletes where you're al- you're always having something sold to get something new. So I now, think that does help. Now, I know you're part of District Triathlon in uh, Washington, D.C., which is a, mm-hmm. a team for uh, people of color as well as uh, people with disabilities. Uh, right. Uh, how has that organization worked to try and bring more uh, diversity to the sport, at least locally? So within District Triathlon, we've actually done our own like sprint triathlons to bring the community together. Um, we've done a women's triathlon. We've done the splash and dashes where you just swim and run a little bit. We have swim clinics that we volunteered for, swim races that we volunteered for. And so, again, it's about that outreach, bringing awareness, and then inviting the community out to come and be a part. And we even encourage, if you can't swim, you can walk. It's your race. You know, you can splash a little bit, walk a little bit till you reach the side, until you finish, especially with a sprint triathlon because they're fairly short. So we still encourage to try, (laughs) to try, you know, go out there and try. But um, we do have the programs of, like I said, the swim clinics, volunteerism, and then just hosting our own, making it our own. And then were you or or are you familiar with the uh, message that uh, Andrew Messick put out uh, through Ironman about their plans for uh, increasing diversity in triathlon? Oh, that's great. I've been looking at Ironman Try and I was waiting on it. So that has been put out. Yeah, he put something out a couple of days ago talking (laughs) about uh, um, so they're going to create an advisory committee for uh, Race for Change program to help guide their thinking. They want to make an initial pledge of a million dollars to fund the initiative uh, and concurrently starting a diversity and inclusiveness committee within the company to provide a voice for their workforce and develop ways to become a more inclusive organization. Now, you know, baby steps for sure. And uh, I've been in the sport a long time, and I've seen other similar sort of steps made by USAT in the past, although never funded to the extent that WTC is saying. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I'm hopeful this will have some kind of effect, but it seems to me that the biggest impact can be made by athletes at the time of the race. And I'm just wondering, what kinds of, uh, you know, what kinds of things have you encountered either on race day or while training uh, that make you feel less than welcome uh, at these events? Um, it's not it's not really a a less than welcome situation. Matter of fact, I think when I'm when I'm racing, like say I'm biking, and I'm just you know I'm biking, I'm not thinking about it. I'm just trying to race, and somebody will zoom by me and go, "Oh, you're doing a great job. You're doing you look great." But then they'll go by somebody else, won't say a thing. And so in my head, I'm like did you really want to compliment me or you're trying to make a point that I'm out here? You know, like, wh- like, what is that? Or when I finish a race, um, I was walking with one of my friends, we were getting my bike and I was like, wow, she's going to tell me I did such a great job. Right. And so this one lady was standing there and she goes, Oh, you did such an excellent job. Didn't say anything to anybody else. Not everybody passed her until I came across. She goes, Oh, you did such an excellent job. And I'm just like, I, you just had 50 other people pass you and you said nothing until I walk by. So it's kind of like, 
you know, you kind of have the subconscious, like, all right, Farron, <laughs> are they targeting you for being, you know, African-American or female? Or are they really, you know, are people really congratulating you? I don't know how that works. So um, I will say with Ironman triathlons or any race that I've been to, I felt welcome in a sense from the race itself. Um, it's just some actions of, you know, particular participants where you're just like, okay, you didn't have to point me out. (laughs) I can't help but wonder if it's not well-intentioned, well-meaning people who are misstepping. And that's something Mm -hmm. we're all acutely aware of in this time right now is that we really want, we want to do right. And, uh, we kind of go out of our way and in so doing, we're doing exactly the opposite. Absolutely doing the opposite. (laughs) So, so what can we do as white athletes? And let's face it, the vast majority of Ironman athletes are white. And what can we do to welcome you, you know, in our environment without misstepping in that way? I, I don't just, just keep the compliments and everything like you would anybody else. I mean, if you can tell when there's this urge to go out of their way to say something to you like oh my god thanks for being here oh my god oh you did such a great job you didn't even see me race I, you you had to fit you know like, how are you just gonna point me out when i'm zooming by or running by or swimming you know and it's just um just being aware of like just treat me like anybody else you know if you're com- if you're gonna compliment me compliment the person right after me or compliment the person right before me okay well at the risk so. of at the risk of misstepping <laughs> just don't. i, I want to do it do well i want to i want to i want to take the risk of misstepping right now because let's face it farron if i see okay. you or or uh marcus fitz who i spoke to on the last yeah, uh, he's a, episode he's my coach. Yeah. yeah yeah if i see you or marcus at a race i mean let's face it I'm going to want to go up to you and I am going to want to say, you know what? I'm really glad to see you here because I'm really glad to see a person of color at this race. And I'd love to see more. Um, then say, then you know what? Say that I'd rather somebody say that than to be like, Oh, you did an excellent job. And then not talk to anybody else the rest of the day. You know, like okay. I'd rather you just, just say that to okay. me, to me, it's not offensive because I want to see other African Americans and people of color as well. I want to raise this awareness. See, I feel better now. No, we're good. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Okay, great. Um, What what uh, other kinds of things do you think can be done? I mean, we've talked a little bit about swimming. To me, that's a big one. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think, you know, locally here in Denver, what can I do as a coach, as a a triathlete who really wants to see this change? And I mean, I I'm fortunate through my podcast to know some race organizers and I'm going to reach out to them and see if we can't do some outreach to our, you know, yep. minority communities and see, and I say minority oh. just because I want to include Latino community, which is very big Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's enough. I do want to make a point of that. Instead of just saying, you know, African-American or black people of color, because you have tri-Latina that's, that's around in the area and they're a Latino based triathlon club. Right. Amazing, amazing right. team, amazing club, you know, when district triathlon and tri-Latino link up it's like a party we're like hey yeah. you know we're like we're here yeah I mean, representation matters yeah and and i'm trying to think of ways that you know i i can leverage some of these connections to try and increase diversity here because colorado mm-hmm. is a very white state but we do yep. have a lot of color and and it'd be nice to see that reflected in our races Absolutely. so so what other things can we do to try and encourage people to come and to feel welcome i mean we've talked about the cost and we could try and help with overcoming that and i can think of a few things 
certainly people, like you said, we're always looking to, you know, N plus one, change our bike, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I, <laughs> I, I'm thinking myself the next time I go for a new bike, I don't necessarily, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that I don't necessarily need a huge amount of money coming back right. in. So I'll be sure that next time I need to sell a bike, I'm going to make sure that I do so at a, you know, yeah. at a reasonable amount to somebody who really needs it. Absolutely. Um, what else can we do to try and help folks to try and reach out and make them feel comfortable? I think even with advertisement. So when you flip through your triathlon magazines or um, USAT magazines, you don't really see a lot of people of color making the cover. You don't really see people of color in the book. You might see like a like a little bitty picture in the bottom right hand corner, but that's probably it. Like you don't, they don't advertise the general population that is people of color mm. in the advertisement in their magazines. In their, you know, the swimming companies um, that have the wetsuits or, you know, swimming gear, they don't advertise people of color in their, in their merchandise. So that's another step. Diversify your advertising to have awareness of like, oh, that's, a, that's an African-American or that's a Latino or that's, you know, that's whatever. You know, change the, change the narrative, change the visual narrative that, you know, people of color are doing this sport too. We are out here. And to, to go on with that, how much of an issue do you think it would be to have more pros that were, you know, people of color? I mean, we right now, Sika Henry is one. like the only one, right? Well, you actually have your Max Fennell. Fennell, I think I'm saying his name right. Sorry if I screwed that up, Max. But um, he's the only African-American pro triathlete right now, male African-American pro triathlete. Sika Henry, going for her pro card, got her pro card, whatever. She's amazing. I've raced next to her. She's a beast, um, but that's it. You yeah. have you have no other pro African American people of color triathletes in this sport, and that's an issue. It's 2020. No, that's an issue. Yeah, so. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, these are all excellent points, and uh, definitely starting places uh, for us to uh, move forward and try and increase diversity in our sport. And uh, to me, this is something that's really important because I would really like to see triathlon move from being just a niche sport to something that is uh, much more widely um, appreciated and adopted. And that's only going right. to happen if the sport reflects the population as a whole. So and they uh, have to do that. Yeah. So thank you, mm-hmm. Farron, for all of uh, uh, what you've said today. And uh, this has been a really uh, interesting conversation and one that I think will continue as uh, we proceed through what has been a really interesting <laughs> <laughs> first few months of this year. Uh, Farron right. Campbell is joining me from Washington, D.C., where she is active duty military and a competitive bodybuilder triathlete and swimmer and uh, a member of District Triathlon and I think also Grit USA, correct? Grit USA, yeah, I'm part of that now this year. All right. Well, uh, Mm -hmm. Farron, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciated the conversation. Thank you so much, Jeff. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, try.coaching on Instagram, and the Tri Coaching YouTube channel, where you'll find new content, including a video on waxing your chain, 
Does it give you the free speed that you might think it does? And is it worth the investment in both cost and time? You'll also find a video of my interview with Farron Campbell from today's episode, and I urge you to take a look. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDark Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question to answer, and I'll continue my exploration into how we can make triathlon more diverse with an interview with Linus Pagusera, a Filipino-American who has been involved in triathlon for several years and has some great insights into the sport from the perspective of an immigrant to this country. Until then, train hard, train healthy.